Hello everyone and welcome to season two of the Lucimer podcast. I'm pleased to finally be recording this after a few months which to me felt like time spent in limbo. You know, it's it's a psychological hole in the eyes, so to speak. So yeah, I'm I'm happy to be doing this. Um, these past months I've also spent engaging with counselors and I've realized some things about myself, you know. Uh, for example, I've had my personality profile measured uh, multiple times, actually, confirming things I otherwise would have probably guessed. Like, I'm not that extroverted and I'm not that introverted either. So uh, that was one thing I learned. I'm more like in the upper half of the introverts, which still would make me an introvert, but, you know, I'm closer to the middle than I anticipated. Uh, I also learned that I'm not exactly a conscientious person, which sort of makes sense, because next comes this personality trait called openness, and so first, openness to experience. Um, is a domain that is used in psychology to describe human personality. It consists of six sub-traits, six facets. So these are uh, interest for fantasy, uh, then sensitivity to one's own feelings, uh, intellectual curiosity, uh, aesthetic sensitivity, adventurousness, and also uh, liberalism, which is one's proclivity to challenge authority. And I scored high and very high on all of these, except for adventurousness, where I scored um, average. But the thing is, I scored very high uh, on curiosity and fantasy, you know, 90, uh, 96 percentile, yeah. I mean, it could have been worse, but the problem with this is that when you're so open, it makes you vulnerable to a lot of things, from nightmares to identity issues to a sort of defiance, which makes it so that the only space left for you is the one you make for yourself, which then leaves you stranded you know, socially, but so that's how perhaps I thought I'd score lower on extroversion than I factually did. Yeah, so leaving that aside for now, uh, today I thought I'd want to talk a little bit about this idea of moral strategies, which include guilt, shame and fear. Uh, this notion of moral strategy looks a lot like a spectrum, although it's not necessarily that. I mean, what you can do is you can draw a map of the world and assign these uh, strategies pretty easily to any country. And to me, what was interesting is that there seems to be a sort of pattern between the moral strategy that tends to be promoted on a, on a national scale and, and the economic and the social status of said countries, with the vast majority of uh, European and generally Western countries using guilt as a moral strategy, and with the vast majority of the Eastern and uh, African countries, except for South Africa, 
using shame as a moral strategy. I am mainly going to talk about these two, about guilt and shame, because fear, the third strategy, seems to be on a limp, which is like, fair enough, like, I don't want to imagine myself living in a country wondering, will someone hurt me or even straight up kill me if I do this, which is uh, something that's typical for an individual living in a fear-dominated culture. I'd rather um, orient myself after more abstract but more uh, comprehensive yeah, guidelines such as, you know, is my behavior fair or unfair? Which is what the so-called guilt uh, cultures promote. So, first, I want to try to go into the importance of moral strategies and how they came to be. And I want to distinguish the emotion from the moral value. I mean, we all feel said emotions, guilt, shame and fear as a, as a natural aspect of human life in general. But on a cultural scale, one of these will be more dominant than the other in magazines and movies and stories and conversation and even in the emotion itself, right? Since guilt and shame are social emotions, which are socially uh, moderated as we grow up and develop our body and our mind. But both shame and guilt are closely related concepts with their main differences being nevertheless very significant. Whereas guilt is caused by a, um, a transgression against one's personal values. Shame is generated by this, uh, well, it could be a real or imagined negative perception of one's actions by other people. And, and so shame is sort of like looking, your, looking at yourself, yeah. And so shame is sort of like looking at yourself negatively through the eyes of other people, which as far as I'm concerned, that's, you know, for the most part, a can of worms. Because, well, what do they know, right? Like, what is there to see exactly even, especially if they're strangers, because most of this is internal. Like, of course, there's value in uh, assessing what's acceptable through the eyes of other people, but that's about behavior and not all the time too. Um, it's not about assessing individual value or the, the, what the legitimacy of one's inner matters, like feelings and thoughts. No one's got or no one should get the authority to do so because by that point they'll be confusing themselves with a, with a higher power, which obviously they're not. And that leads to corruption and then to resentment and then perhaps to more reasons to be ashamed, right? Right. And I have a friend actually who struggles with, with feelings of shame and that's partly what inspired me to speak about this because they uh, virtually most of what's going on in their mind explicitly is a is a result in some sense of the underlying shame that they're feeling and it changed the way they understand the notion of human value even as in 
for the, for example they believe that they're to blame for everything that goes wrong around them which you know that's sort of an invalidation of the idea that people have the right to be presumed innocent and it leaves them stranded on this impossible question of is there a reason not to feel bad about myself and they also find it uh, difficult to tell the difference between guilt and shame and as far as I'm concerned this is uh, one way to make that distinction so if you ever feel in doubt about this first of what you should do is probably not give up your presumption of innocence right you have to be very wary of what you take responsibility for um, and probably the next thing you can do is ask yourself was my conscience telling me to do something and did I refuse to do it so that's the most uh, basic thing you should do in a situation like this assuming that you do have a conscience and that it's um, uh, well developed and aligned with proper societal norms which themselves represent a kind of conscience at a collective level right um, there's actually another version of this question which Socrates used thousands of years ago which is uh, was my conscience telling me not to do something and did I ignore it and because that's what laws dictate basically they tell you what not to do and I mean yeah they also tell you in some sense what you should do but most of it is don't ignore what the law tells you uh, now another thing about my friend is that they find it problematic that they aren't who they would prefer to be which is um, you know someone who's more intelligent more uh, resourceful more conscientious who's healthier and and in all of that they find guilt but it's really not guilt it's it's plain shame and they then they ask themselves right well should I feel ashamed and the answer to that question again as far as I'm concerned and from a more technical point of view too is always no because shame the thing about shame is it doesn't allow for a separation between you and the problem it doesn't concern itself with what you've done explicitly it instead takes a this sharp turn and says well the problem is you yeah and in, in that sense it's more comfortable because then there's nothing you can do and there's nothing to be done except maybe for feeling ashamed which you'd think is the solution but it simply doesn't make the problem go away and in that sense it makes you blind too um, uh, as to what's actually gone wrong so no there's no need to feel ashamed you either feel it or not and that's a separate issue but um, the next step would probably be, well, what's the actual problem? Which in some sense it's so much more difficult a question as compared to should I feel ashamed or not? And then there's of course like what can I do about it? So yeah, when it comes to identifying shame as being distinct 
from guilt, let's say. If the answer is something like, I should be, or I should have been a different, or more specifically, a better person, then that's not guilt. Not ever. That's shame. Because it doesn't revolve around a deed of yours. It, it instead makes a judgment regarding your individual value as such. But So you have to be precise about this. And I don't think you can necessarily manage that alone. You need a friend you can trust or a professional to, to keep you in check and to help you set yourself apart from the problem. And then to also actually identify the problem that is behind all this. There is another question here, which is, um, well, if shame is so injurious, then how come it's still present in the minds of some cultures? Um, I think there are several equally important reasons for this. One of them having to do with the fact that even though shame is unsustainable in the long run and therefore unserviceable because of its uh, impracticality and, and, and because it will always have to be uh, reinforced by use of other harmful, usually uh, authoritarian measures such as imprisonment, uh, slavery, starvation, executions, sort of these fear-related measures actually, like like what's been happening in, in, in North Korea for so many decades, because it started as a shame-based uh, cultural movement, right, with having more uh, resources being considered a sign of honored privilege and, and therefore something to be ashamed of. So it seems to me that if left unchecked, actually, shame-based cultures tend to 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 revert back to, to fear-based cultures because fear is more sustainable than shame. So even if shame is uh, unsustainable, one reason for how it tends to keep showing up is uh, that it's rewarding in the short term. You don't have to know much about history. You just have to submit yourself to the narrative and to the people leading the narrative, right? Because I think it has to do um, also with the condition of the human being. Like Ever since the dawn of history, us humans have had two fundamental fears, one of which uh, is of the natural world, our predators and the uh, many other ways in which what could have died whilst being out in the open uh, and the other one being social isolation, right? Um, right, not having the protection of your tribe uh, and so this is the most fundamental layer of our survival we we, we keep these two elements in, in mind but because we've, we've, we've sort of dealt with a lot of what constituted before the natural dangers as i as i call them um the only thing that people tend to care um about is well social isolation it's it's an inbuilt mechanism too you don't have to learn it so it's readily uh, available for people in well let's say for influential people you know charismatic and perhaps self-centered individuals to, to come in and access this mechanism in order for them to end up at the top of, of the tribe, essentially. Although there's obviously a little bit more to that, uh, but it has to do with things like dark psychology, so I'm not exactly ready to go into that now, but I will at, at some point. Uh, um, what I will say is that 
something will rule over you. It's inevitable and it's always the case. And so you have to be very careful about what you allow to rule over you. And by extension, what's most terrifying is when you don't even know what that thing is. Luke Toretemergo. Thanks for listening.